Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast. So, Chris, here we are, episode 11, the first star and we're going to talk to Anne Dirk and Keating again. Are you talking about the the star of Bethlehem or something? What what is the star you're talking about? I was more talking about Professor Keating, the author, the historian from North Central College. We're going to talk to Dr. Keating, but and she is a star in my book. She's an amazing historian. She is. But you're talking about the first star, my reference there, and that's to of course the Chicago flag. Yes, there are four stars on the flag of Chicago. Right, which as everybody knows has kind of a white background with two light blue stripes, uh, top and bottom, going across horizontally. And then in the middle are a series of four red six-sided stars. I had to look it up, but the mayor at the time, Big Bill Thompson, had a contest to design a flag for Chicago. And what year was this, Chris? It was... In 1915, Mayor Thompson appointed a commission to create a new municipal flag. This was Big Bill Thompson saying, hey, we need a flag for Chicago. Yeah. So Chicago author and lecturer Wallace Rice was asked to devise a set of rules for selecting the flag. Many people submitted ideas. Sure. And then finally the city council approved and selected. It's designed by Wallace Rice in 1917. But if I recall, when we were at the Chicago History Museum, the 1917 flag only had two stars. That's right, thinking left to right. The first star that was picked in 1917 was for the Chicago Fire. Chicago Fire, 1871. So yeah. the second star was for the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. The new flag left plenty of space for additional stars. Okay. Of course, there was... A couple more stars. We have four now. So where'd those come from? Well, in 1933, a third star was added. That was the Century of Progress International Exposition of 1933. Well, ironically, one week after flag designer Wallace Rice died, the city council added a a final star to commemorate the Fort Dearborn Massacre of 1812. Mm -hmm. They also designed a new order for the stars from the hoist onwards, beginning with Fort Dearborn. Right, so they did it in chronological order then. But it looks like now, also from what we saw at the History Museum, is that there's room for a fifth star, potentially. So uh, as you, you know, get into this and, you know, Chicago evolves, there may be some major event that will merit yet a a fifth star to the Chicago. And some ideas that have been bandied about were a star for 1673 and Joliet and Marquette's expedition here. Some have suggested a star to commemorate the birth of the atomic age at Stagg Field at the University of Chicago. Oh, right. 
in, in any event, we're here to talk about the first star of Chicago's flag, and that has to do with Fort Dearborn, and therefore, we're going to talk to Dr. Keating again. Yes, we had an amazing interview with Dr. Keating about the events leading up to Fort Dearborn and then the actual battle itself. So let's get into it. Fort Dearborn is one of the stars on the Chicago flag, as is the Chicago fire. Both are eminent disasters from <laughs> one perspective. Let's start with Fort Dearborn. Does it deserve to be on the flag? I think it's a really interesting place to start. Mm-hmm. It was certainly intended to mark the massacre, which I really think we can re-envision to mm-hmm. thinking more broadly about the Fort Dearborn era. When Chicago's an Indian country, the world before we're an American city, when the military outpost here is in Potawatomi country. So I really like the idea of having a star from 1812, from the Fort Dearborn era, but I'm certainly not uh, interpreting that the way that I think it was initially interpreted. I feel really strongly that we ought to reinterpret, that we go back to the facts that are available to us and we use them for the present time. And we tell the stories from the past that help us to understand where we are right now. And in that case, in that star, I definitely think there's a lot for us to remember and mark. I know it's not the original intention of that first star. Maybe the intention was kind of like waving the bloody shirt, as in we've conquered the wilderness and look what they did to us, but we survived. Yeah. Again, maybe something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's almost... Like a general uh, custer. Yeah, no, I think that's... And the idea that you're marking this, a battle that's lost as a massacre, for starters, is, uh, you know, a whole discussion to have. But the idea that the overall arc of this story is the destruction of Indian country, that's really what we should be marking, not the battle, not the events of August 15th. 1812 straight flip. up. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's nobody. I, I've yet to hear anybody say that. And, and yet, of course, I'm not talking to many Native Americans, but it, it, it does. It, you're flipping it on its head of this is about Indian country not only transitioning, but then going into now American hands. Right. More broadly, in, in doing American history or Chicago history, we just glossed over that, right? We don't want yeah. to tell that story of American imperialism that's the basis of what the United States is. It's just important to recognize and that that's where we start. Well, like we talked a couple of podcasts back, episode nine, Yeah. you know, your first book was Chicago Starts in 1830. It's a real estate deal. Right. But really, from a broader perspective, a wider right. view of history, that's the transition point from becoming Indian country to now starting to become... Western civilization. Right, right. I kind of see leading up into the battle or, the, or mm-hmm. the massacre, depending on how it's told, as it begins with the attack at Hard Scrabble, right, in April. Can I back you up yeah, one more? Sure. Yeah. The arc of the story from my standpoint, I need Tippy Canoe in there. You, so, you want a little runway? I want a runway. All right. So, that's, so is that October or November? It's of November, November of 1811. Okay. William Henry Harrison attacks Tippecanoe, which is Tenskwatawa, the prophet 
and Tecumseh. The two brothers. The two, the two brothers. Tecumseh and his brother, the Shawnee prophet. It's their village. And Tippecanoe really represents a different vision for what the future would hold for this region. Sure. And what Tecumseh and his brother wanted was a nativist view, this idea that everything would return back to Native American hands and that you would reject all things American and coming from the East Coast. Going back to traditional garbs, not wearing woven clothing, traditional ways, hiding with bow and arrow, right? that kind of thing. One of the most obvious things is no bread, no liquor. Alcohol is another big piece of this. Intermarriage. So Tecumseh and his brother... In their vision, Indian men and women who have married non-Indians were to leave their families, leave their children, and return to a world that's one thing or the other. So Tecumseh and, and his brother Tenskwatawa are over there pushing for this really very strong, independent Indian state. Like a purity test almost? It's exactly right. It's like yeah. the Taliban. To yeah. use a modern reference. Right. I'm, the only hesitation I've got with that is <laughs> this is where they were. They are not the, that's true. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, so in some ways, if we're the thinking, of, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I hesitate a little bit okay. about that. I think your point is on the mark in terms of we continually yeah. redo these There's stories. There's a puritanical pure aspect. They that. very much have a sense of this is how things should be. Interestingly enough, orthodox is a good way to think about it. And I also think the same time, so do the American settlers moving west. Mm -hmm. They have little tolerance for... (laughs) They don't like the intermingling. They don't want the intermingling. They don't want Indians around. In a way, you've got the two very orthodox, very... uh, And then you've got people like Kinsey and Olmet who are in this middle that are yeah. Billy Caldwell, who are willing to operate in this broader well, world. Book, right? the oh, Brown. big time. And that's where, this, that's where my thinking on this comes from. We're back in the studios. Chris, The Middle Ground is this book by Richard White. Yes, you have a copy here, Patrick, and it's a very impressive tome. It's five, 600 pages here. Yes, and it is a book published by the Cambridge University Press in 1991, and it basically talks about that intersection of cultures that occurs in the Great Lakes between Native American culture and the British and then U.S. or American cultures. This is a transactional area. Yes, it's this imperfect middle ground of interaction and transaction of language, information, the cultural norms and goods between the cultures. Now, where it's going to be a clash. Right. As he considered it, kind of a melding where you'd start to get try to get along, stuff was lost in translation. But now the Americans don't care anymore about the exchange. They just want to take it over. Right. I think the Americans, they, they're not looking for any kind of intermingling. They don't want a kumbaya moment. No, they don't. <laughs> so we've got this world in 1811, and, and William Henry Harrison really represents the American, yeah. let's turn this into real estate. And he's in Vincennes in Indiana. He's in Vincennes. So this is all right in close orbit to okay. Chicago, right? It's a couple days ride from Chicago. A couple days like ride from yeah. Chicago. You've got Tippecanoe and the nativists there. And then you've got 
the people in the middle who want to leave things kind of as they've been for mm -hmm. now for generations. And you can make an argument that William Wells at Fort Wayne and certainly the folks here at Chicago, Kinsey and his brother well, Thomas Forsythe would fit and that And for bill. sure the French Metis community. Oh, absolutely. It's there. And also, you know, your favorite in Illinois towns. Oh, yeah. Bourbonnais. Bourbonnais, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're heading to U of I, that's where I stop for guests. Cahokia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, that this Peoria. is just, there's a deep French history culture. and a deep tradition that is at stake here, too. So in 1811, William Henry Harrison kind of lobs the first, grenade the first grenade at this, yeah, by coming in and burning the villages right. at Tippecanoe in November before the winter starts and destroys the food supplies. That really galvanizes a lot of Native Americans, certainly the Potawatomi in this area, to think really hard about whether or not there's going to be a middle ground or whether they're going to have to make a choice. And you're going to find more of them leaning towards, they may not agree with Tecumseh. So somebody like Man Pac is not all that interested in a lot of the nativist approach that Tenskwatawa is talking about, but he's definitely realizes that there's going to be a fight. Okay, back in the studio. Main Pac, the name of a Potawatomi chief. There's multiple spellings, and it's usually spelled M-A-I-N, capital P-O-C. I'm not sure what it means. Main Pac. Yes. He was the chief of a village near the intersection of the Kankakee and the Plains Rivers. Okay. Down Pop near Joliet? Yes. Area. Basically where it becomes the Illinois River. Okay. Because when the displays and Kankin meet, then that's considered south of there, uh, the so, Illinois River. So where the displays and Kankakee meet, mm -hmm. that's the territory. That village. And so Joliet's just a little further north, and that's actually where the Hickory Creek comes in from the east into the northern displays River. This is the second portage that we discussed. Which is right. That would be the eastern episodes. entrance to the second portage, a callback to our. Uh, episodes one, two, and three with John Swenson. Right. And Maine Pock was an enemy of the Americans. He was outspoken about uh, unequal justice uh, and treatment of the Native Americans and fights with Tecumseh in the War of 1812. Hmm. And for much of this conversation in 1812, he's not at his home village, but up in Detroit at Meldon uh, with the British and taking advantage of their hospitality, and in fact later dies in 1816 of alcoholism. Wow. William Henry Harrison attacks Tippecanoe, which is Tenskwatawa, the prophet, and Tecumseh. The two brothers. The, the two brothers, their village. And, and that was a military tactic. Yeah. They didn't pick those stores of mm -hmm. grain, whatever. Exactly for, right. By accident. No. That was pure tactics. Right. And Tecumseh is gone. Tecumseh is in the mm -hmm. south. So the warriors are gone. So well, Harrison waits till, you know, the warriors are out, are gone with Tecumseh and then comes in and burns those villages. Because Tecumseh has spent the last, what, couple, three years? It's three, Putting yeah. together an alliance right. of both southern... Indian tribes, uh, Western Indian West. tribes, and Midwestern Great Lakes tribes to create this alliance around these teachings of his brother, the prophet. The U.S. wants to represent themselves as 
the 13 fires or one nation of those mm -hmm. 13 states, right. why don't we do that as Indians as well? I, I say 13 fires. It really, at this point, should be the 17 fires. 17 fires. Right. It's gone from the 13 colonies to now 17 states or the 17 fires in the view of the Native Americans. Yet the U.S. keeps different tribes very divisive against right. one another and negotiating individual treaties. He wants to do, you know, one-by-one one negotiation so he can get the best possible deal. And Thomas Jefferson is probably a big proponent of this. But he developed that factory system or expanded it from Washington's original right. version to ideally get the Native Americans more in debt or be able to trade for more land. And now William Henry Harrison is his instrument to make that happen in the it. Great Lakes, right? Right. Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, the name of the book about this, right? Oh, really? So I yeah, heard, okay. so nicely done. Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. So that's Harrison. Okay, back in the studio. Chris, Mr. Jefferson's Hammer. They use that to build Monticello? Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, I, I, there, I'm sure there was a Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, but this is the title of a book that Dr. Keating just referenced uh, by Robert M. Owens, published in 2011. And the full title is Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, William Henry Harrison, and the Origins of American Indian Policy. Well, of course, he was the governor of Indiana Territory, right? Correct. Correct. At this time in 1816. And then later becomes president of the United States. Did you ever memorize the presidents? There's friends of mine that could do that, and I never did I never that. did. I just, remember, it off. I just remember Tippy Canoe and Tyler, too. Right, which was his campaign slogan for the presidency. Referring to the Battle of Tippy Canoe exactly. in Lafayette, Indiana? Yes. Or what is now Indiana. Right, right. So as fellow authors, we like to give other authors due when we name-check them on the podcast. And so Mr. Jefferson's Hammer by Robert M. Owens, published in 2011. So Harrison's jumped in here. And he's ambitious and he's young. Oh, you've got he, it. And he was yeah. around for the Greenville Treaty as a, as like a, uh, aid, 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 right, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's there. And so once you get that attack at Tippecanoe, mm -hmm. then when Tecumseh comes back, they start to plan, right? And militarily, that was pretty much a draw, other than that the Indians left the battlefield, which was not unusual. No. But as far as casualties in that, it was pretty much even, if not more casualties for the Americans, but they held the ground. So they... Yeah, they declared a victory, and that's how it got presented. I'm, I'm with you. I think that in actuality, there wasn't much of a battle here. And the problem was... Tenskwatawa. Tenskwatawa. I think he also, though, told his the supporters that he had done a spell so that the bullets would like either miss them or pass right. right through them, and they ended up getting Hurt. pretty badly yeah. shot up and still persevered reasonably well, but it was a big embarrassment for him, and then he got heavily chastised by his brother when his brother showed back up because they weren't supposed to agitate they just weren't supposed to do this. Harrison and right. cause this, right. this attack. Right. And this is near modern-day Lafayette. That's exactly, yeah, yeah. Very close to Purdue University. If you're down on 65, yeah. it's worth actually a stop. The Tippecanoe yeah. Historical Society has wonderful George Caitlin's 
They have this incredible collection of the Indian paintings of George Caitlin. So it's probably the best collection in mm. our region at this point. Because I've passed it a hundred times yeah. on my way up and down the yeah. 65. So yeah, de- definitely worth a, a visit. Yeah. So that's where I would start. So then everybody goes on high alert. And it scattered the group that had been developed around Tippecanoe. Right. But it really upset the natives. Right. And Tecumseh starts to plan. And the plans are, we're going to start thinking about attacks on Americans, but not until after the harvest. Mm -hmm. Because they've got to resupply. And so that's the vision. And so Tecumseh's out there encouraging regionally for groups to get together. So Peoria, Milwaukee are the ones that I know the most about. And those are going on in the spring of 1812. What's going on is also then this heightened alert Mm -hmm. in the region at Fort Wayne and at Chicago, at Fort Dearborn. Potawatomi and their allies in the area are, (laughs) they're not happy with what happened at Tippecanoe. And they're purporting to be friends with the Americans, but then you get reports that come back from John Lanine right. and John Kinsey and uh, Thomas Forsyth that right. out of Peoria. They're dancing the war dance and that there's seems to be some uh, a potential a- attacks coming in 1811 or right. 1812. Right. is really trying to keep order. I mean, he's looking for a very strategic attack mm-hmm. rather than the kind of attack that in fact takes place in the spring at Chicago, at the Lee Farm in 1812. Right. That's an attack that's not exactly what he's looking for. But there's so much... But that was a band of Winnebago from yeah, the Rock it's River. Just, yeah. Those Hudchunk warriors, they're coming through, and they attack. Again, who do they attack? I think it's really interesting. So you yeah. think about the Lee Farm. That's Martha and James Lee. Yeah. And it's James Russell is the father-in-law. So it's Martha's okay. father... Lee and Russell were soldiers at Fort Dearborn, and right. they've left the army. We talked about him being tight with Whistler before Whistler That's exactly right. Out. So they, they are doing what Whistler needs, right, which yep. is they're raising food. And cattle. And cattle. Right. They're not technically supposed to be here, right, because they're no longer in the army. There aren't supposed to be American civilians there, but that they are a threat. Basically at Bridgeport. Farm is at Bridgeport, south branch of the river, and where that and what they represent then, and when I think about this, is they really represent the American vision of this area, Mm -hmm. as they're farmers. Agrarian. They're going to come in and take this land away, and the Native Americans are going to be left without the land that they needed for their own farms and for hunting grounds. That farm, more than Fort Dearborn, represents the enemy. (laughs) That's the future that they don't want. Who's destroying that prairie. To your point, that's, yeah. that is, that when I think about the Lee Farm in the spring of yeah. 1812, it is a lightning rod sure. for what the future may hold. It's and a stake in the ground. Th- I think it's a really uh, important way to see it. If you can scare people off, if you can get them to leave, that'll potentially keep this in Native hands a longer period of time. The enemy is the farmer. You can think about, oh, you know, it's an attack that's not on the fort itself. It's not on soldiers straight up. But <laughs> right. yeah, sure. the enemy is really not these 100-odd American soldiers. Yeah. The enemy is not the, the traders who are out in the area. The enemy really are these American farmers coming in. Mm-hmm. The worlds can't coexist. Yeah. So it's one or the other. You can't have nomadic peoples crossing private land as, as an American would think of it. Right. 
back to Thomas Jefferson, what Jefferson envisioned was making these nomadic people in the West farmers. Of course, yeah. they were already farmers. Native right. Americans were all raising crops right. in this area. The That's idea always th- ignored. I, I, right from, and I think Thomas Jefferson allowed us to do this. Yeah. And Jefferson was, others like him, but Jefferson writes about it so much, were able to just simply ignore the fact that there was all this farming going on because they just, he, he could easily ignore what these women were doing. And part of that is that the farmers were women, the men were hunters and warriors. He wanted the men to be farmers. <laughs> as once the men were farmers, they were no longer warriors and hunters, so they didn't need as much land and they weren't going to be fighting. So that fiction of there's no farming going on was an important part of that. And that's a cultural clash because the men don't want to do what they see as women's work. And that's absolutely a piece of, you know, in these years, 1809 to 1812, a Potawatomi-like man going east to see Jefferson, right? And he's trying to convince them that this is all inevitable. So you just kind of want to get with the program. Manpac is like, no, that's really not what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. But and, that's another story, and he didn't right? didn't ask them what they wanted oh, to do. There was no, no discussion yeah. about that, right? No, no, no. And Americans, we are, again, in 1812, we're still before the steamship but it's coming. <laughs> 1817, as soon as the war is over, you have that transportation shift. So, And that's going to really change the story once you've got steam travel and then the canals. Mm-hmm. So the Erie Canal is going to be another decade, but once you've got those changes, then you're so much closer in terms of time to the East Coast. Back to your point about density, you're going to have a more intensive use and a denser use of land stay in one place, that you're not going to be nomadic. Coming back to that idea of the Potawatomi are moving over the course of the year, and that's just that kind of use of land is seen as inefficient. Yeah. Back at Lee's farm. Right. Towards the end of the day, I want to say five ish or six o'clock, not too far from dark. Yeah. There's a crew from the fort that's gone fishing. Uh, yeah. So they're on the river fishing. The son, one of the, the younger Lee, um, a son of, of Martha, and one of the soldiers, I think, comes back. Is yeah, that yeah. right? Also, is the soldier yeah. who's there. Um, Liberty White is also there. And then there's a Frenchman, uh, Jean uh, Cardin. Liberty White says something to the fact that these aren't our Indians, meaning Potawatomi, that mm-hmm. they didn't know what tribe. And that's when John Kelso, who's a former soldier, takes Johnny Lee, the son of James Lee. Mm-hmm. And they go, according to the Wabin story, um, they're almost held up by one of the Indians, but so they made gestures that they were going to feed the cows and then be back. And, and he says, do what I do. They are able to go free and cross the river and they each take a canoe rather than leaving a canoe there for the Indians to potentially follow them and tend to the cows. And they do that and go out of sight once or twice or three times, and, and the Indians don't seem to react. So then they just hightail it for, right. for the fort. Oh, wow. Is this commemorated anywhere in Bridgeport? Is there a plaque or anything? No, I've wandered a bit in Bridgeport. I'm curious about. Be interesting trying to find you got it, it? you got it because I think it's so north of Canal Port, okay, between the river and Canal Port. If I got that right, I think some of the oldest houses Mm -hmm. in Chicago they're there, yeah. There's a lot of work to be done on Bridgeport, but that 
piece of Bridgeport, I've wandered a bit, and I know that would be a great place to do some archaeology. I just think somebody needs to do a lot more work on Bridgeport. But perhaps somebody who's listening, if they know something, exactly they, right. can, they yeah. can let us know. Yeah. 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 yeah, that'd be fascinating. So then Kelso and John Lee get back to the fort. They're warning the families that they're running into. So another one of the accounts of the day is that Eleanor Kinsey is helping Mary Burns is, has a young child, and they're going back and forth on the river. The alarm goes off, and they go into the fort. And from that point forward, they're going to be on high alert at Fort Dearborn. From this point all the way through August, the community at Chicago really goes through the, the, um, the battle itself. Things are tense. Things are very tense. And I think most everybody has either moved into the fort or to the agency house, right. which is right underneath the... Um, Right, so we get the split with the crews of people, right? In the agency house, you've got Lalim and and Irwin, and Kinsey goes into the fort. Yeah, he's given contractor space inside the fort. Yeah. So So again, he's, he's always working privilege. Oh, yeah. But again, with a recognition that he can be really useful. And I think that's probably the thing that if we're thinking about John Kinsey, he's incredibly useful in this world that now has become so dangerous for Americans. And Nathan Hill doesn't know this terrain. He's relatively new here. He certainly knows Fort Wayne better. It's not that he's so new to the West altogether, but Chicago's new. He's new in Chicago. And and so this might have been a different story if Whistler had been still in town. The moving around has not helped this story. Right. And, and that, of course, we, we talked about in the last podcast, right. the politics of Irwin right. writing behind the back of his commanding officer. Right. right. Ain't it going to continue, even though you've got all this heightened tension in the region? Well, and there's the drama, too, of Liberty White and Jean Cardin are killed, butchered. I mean, their oh, yeah. bodies are desecrated, particularly Liberty White, because he's a white Anglo-Saxon whereas the Frenchman is killed and scalped, but not much more. What, there was some count of the stab wounds on Liberty White. But the worst part was that the men that are out fishing, and I've gone back to the garrison roles. Yeah. I think it was a group in the platoon band. Um, so oh. it's like the fifer oh. and the, and the oh. drummer, and there was like a couple of fifers, and there was a father-son team, and then there was a sergeant with them because the fort cannon has been shot off, and the men are out, and they don't know where they are, so that's the signal that something's up. Right, you have to come back. back. Home, right? Right. Those kids, you know, they're just, you know, sort of like being called home at the end of the day for dinner. The cannon goes off, you better be home, right? Right, right. So they're in the dark. One of the men stumbles over the body of these mutilated men, so you can only imagine the horror of that. Oh, and uh, Cardin had a dog which would not leave his side, and they couldn't take the dog with him, so they then quietly got back into the, the two boats that they had and went back to the fort and found out exactly what was going on, although they, they probably had a pretty good idea. Wow. And then these Ho-Chunk traveling back and forth, probably from Tippecanoe or from meeting with other, other Native Americans in the area, and the Ho-Chunk are tied up, too, with Robert Dixon, who's going to be mm-hmm. another trader out mm-hmm. further west. British trader. British trader. The alliances are starting to become clear, and Dixon gets that there's going to be war. Yeah. Well, the British know that the War of 1812 is coming, and they want as many Native American allies as much as the Americans do. So they're trying to influence the Indians for one side or the other. Right. 
and yeah, they go on high alert, and Heald shuts down the factory. Mm-hmm. And um, probably argued by John Kinsey. Right. This works for John Kinsey, who and Kinsey and Foresight have laid in a substantial amount of supplies, mm-hmm. alcohol and ammunition in particular. A lot of gunpowder. Right. From the Patterson brothers, who are British traders over in Michigan. So. Again, violating this anti-importation tariff that Matthew Irwin has also written to the Secretary of War about coming across with British goods and not having paid the tariffs. Right. Kinsey then is, in Irwin's mind, a traitor, Mm -hmm. not an American, and he is in the fort. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just, he's getting angry, angry. Yeah, Irwin's getting angrier and angrier with this situation. There's going to be continue to be issues. A little bit later, you've got, uh, I think it's sock warriors come through. Yeah, shortly thereafter. Uh, shortly thereafter. And they're on. Um, six sock warriors. Yeah. And Helm and Ronan are threatening to kill or murder right. those. Erwin uh, gets word of that and tells Captain Heald. And so then Helm is reprimanded, but it's more like a slap on the wrist. There's not any real consequences to it. Also because. He needs Helm because he's only got two other officers. Right. Yeah. Then later in, I want to say in end of May or early June. Other Native Americans come through with a French trader who is being held at the fort. Remue? Yeah. From Detroit area, who's talked into by one of the Indian agents in Detroit to deliver a message to Dixon. Mm-hmm. Robert Dixon, Robert right. Dixon, who's probably up in Green Bay mm-hmm. uh, or La Bay uh, at that time. Two Indian guides are with him. I'm not sure what tribes they're from. It ends up that the two Indians have most of the messages with them. Right. And Remue is taking capture, and they fall for the fact that he's the Frenchman, that he's the smart one. <laughs> and he's just sort of the dummy that is an excuse and they are passing through to try to get word to Dixon that he needs to come to Detroit because they're going to attack General Hull up there and take Detroit. Yeah, and or maybe it's actually for Mackinac first, but yeah, and one or the other. Heald doesn't want the Native Americans in the fort, right, or near the fort, so he's going to hold the Frenchmen, but not the Native Americans. So the Native Americans continue on with their messages. It could have changed this story what quite a bit. Yeah, this right. whole story and the attacks on. Mackinac and also on Detroit. Right. Because Dixon rallies the Indians as asked and brings several hundred Native Americans with him to make those attacks. So at the same time, then you've got Tecumseh doing planning. You've got Dixon out there with the idea that the British are going to, there's going to be a war. Yeah. You know, then you get into June and you've got Congress debating Madison's war declaration. Right, because the impressment of sailors is the big issue for the merchants on the East Coast, and it's finally, that's kind of the straw. that. that and you've also then got the encounter between Kinsey and Laleem. Besides what's happening in the Great Lakes with incursions uh, with the Indians uh, on the settlers. So you're going to wind up with two wars. Right. The impetus for these, they're coming from very different directions, but they're going to converge here in a lot of ways over the next couple of months. So and then in the middle of this, we have then that little dust-up with Kinsey and Laleem, 
and Laleen gets murdered in front of Fort Dearborn about six o'clock in the evening with the their two principal witnesses being Matthew Irwin and Isaac Van Voorhees, who's the surgeon's mate at the fort. Van Voorhees later in a letter calls this a pure assassination. And we, we talked at some depth with Paul Dowling on, right. on this in episode 10. Right. And as to why. And What's the date of this murder? It's June 17th. Almost two months before the fateful. Right. There's more to come in between. Yeah. So yeah. Kinsey, the question of what's going to happen to him, whether so he's I'm, going to be accused. Even though there's no jurisdiction in that region. It's a big issue, right? Yeah. yeah. That there's, there's no municipal police, obviously. Well, no. actually, Kinsey's the police. He is the magistrate. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, the, yeah. he's the guy. He's 1804, 1805. Yeah. Yeah. William Henry Harrison appointed him Justice of the Peace for All Chicago. Right. So now everyone's taking a deep breath, a pause. So what are we going to do here? Yeah. Ensign Ronan comes in to warn John Kinsey they're going to take him up. Irwin apparently has done some rabble-rousing probably to have some kind of an inquest. He leaves the fort. So Helm escorts him down to the river. He gets in a canoe and goes across either to his house or then up to some native friends. Also what happens is there's all this commotion about the death of Laleem. His wife is there. There's, I think, a lot of wailing. The, the Metis community has come around to support her in Chicago, which is still probably about half the population mm-hmm. in Chicago. And Helm is given the task. Uh, the soldiers come and take the body and then bury it. Now, later accounts, this is sort of some whitewashing by Juliet Kinsey and via Eleanor, is that they plant him, you know, near the Kinsey estate, and then John Kinsey tends the flowers, you know, and they keep the grave. Now, yeah, right. other accounts say later, like, I don't recall anybody yeah. keeping care of any kind of grave or anything. Yeah, right. So they basically kind of get rid of the body. Yeah, well. John Kinsey is lurking in the area in a couple, three days after that. Right. I like that word, lurking. Yeah. It's very picturesque. Well, because I say lurking because <laughs> there's several incidences then where Matthew Irwin is frustrated by the inability of the soldiers of Fort Dearborn to take him up and arrest him. Yeah, so Matthew Irwin, he's living in the fort then. He he has befriended Isaac Van Voorhees, who's a new surgeon's mate, who replaced John Cooper, who resigned and left after the dust-up with Whistler in 1810, and goes back to the East Coast. His replacement is Isaac Van Voorhees, who's a very young, mm-hmm. also, I think, from Fishkill, New York, East Coast doctor. They become friends, and as protection, he's able to bunk with Van Voorhees. Hmm. And, oh, and the information came back that he's Matthew Irwin, been ratting out Captain Heald to the Secretary of War, right. <laughs> that Captain Heald, he oh, has not man. done the improvements to the trading agency house to make it defensible against the Indians. And so he gets an order from the Secretary of War that that should be reinforced and also that the sutlering business, that they need to like tone that down because he's gotten wind of it. So, and first Irwin it was is, Whistler. Yes. He yeah. was the target oh, of and then, Irwin. Right. And now it's, you know, this guy can't leave it alone. No, and he knows exactly what's happened here and that he's dealing with this dandy yeah will go right to the top and who's to some degree being listened to and it's just like what do you do with him he doesn't know this world no <laughs> without Lalim, he's really not very useful no and with the factory then closed he's even 
less useful. Well, after this letter from the Secretary of War, Heald is incensed. They order Matthew Irwin to go with Ensign Ronan and go take up Kinsey, I think after dark, when <laughs> Kinsey is lurking around and I think the plan is just take him out there and somebody will just do away with him. Maybe Kinsey, maybe Ronan, who knows. Right. He refuses, of course, because he knows he's going to probably get killed. And and they don't really have any authority over him because he's really, by the Indian Department, is where his orders come from, from General Mason in Georgetown. So then Captain Heald comes back with the lieutenant and the ensign, and they have a big dust-up and confrontation. Captain Heald decides that he has to move out of the fort. He's no longer, yeah. you know, he's persona non grata in the fort, and he can go out to the agency house and live there with the rest of the settlers who are huddled there for fear of Indian attacks. Where is the agency house in relation? To, again, we're talking the forts at Wacker and uh, Michigan. Michigan. So where is the settler? So it's, it's probably just at, almost at the Wabash Bridge. It's just, a, okay. you know, 20 yards, 30 yards probably from the fort. It's within gunshot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, so that it's protected by the fort, but separate, as mm-hmm. we talked in an earlier episode, because yeah. you have room for the Indians to gather around without okay. having them go in the fort. Okay. Captain Heal decides, Erwin, uh, he's got six days to find a waiter, basically one of the enlisted men who helps him probably dress and clean his clothes and polish his shoes or whatever errands he needs, and find another one, and it's not going to be one of the soldiers. You know, and it's worth noting that Irwin's being paid more than twice yes. what Heald makes. Oh, so, I'm sure he loved that. Yeah, Irwin is the most highly paid $800 person. $800 a year. Yeah, at the fort. That's... Which is interesting, too, because you point this out in your book, Rising Up From Indian Country, that's a notation that Captain Heald has made in his little notebook that he keeps Uh-oh. kind of in his breast pocket oh, yeah. or back pocket. Oh, yeah. And he's got all kinds of notations over the years. And one of them is that figure. Right. So right. that's this, just burning out. Oh, I, when yeah. you realize this is so important to Heald. Yeah. He's literally carrying yeah. it around with him. Yeah. I, and talk about a grudge. Yeah. This yeah. Is, he's not a Buddhist. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. And Irwin is a thorn in everybody's side. Yeah. On one hand, he is absolutely right. Right. Uh, the things that he's complaining about are things that are they're not made up they are things that are taking place but there's a context for all of those things there's a pragmatism to this part of the country at this point and it's a dangerous place at this point so i mean which he's found out all too well now it's exactly but it takes this to get to that point where Irwin realizes oh i've this is too far and then he leaves his interpreter has been killed he's been ordered out of the fort Oh, they also, you, you, you mentioned this, right? They tear up his garden. Yes. In one of the letters we, we read. That's right, yeah. So he had a personal plot right. yeah. near the soldiers' gardens, the fort's gardens, and they just tear it up. I'm sure if he had a car, they would have keyed it. To, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. I mean, this is, right. this is what people do. Yeah. So on July 5th, the Friends Goodwill, a Great Lakes Sloop, comes down from Detroit via Mackinac, and... Matthew Irwin loads a bunch of furs that he's collected. I think 99 packs of furs. Right. So I believe Kinsey also gets a shipment of goods that arrive at that point. And Kinsey's not there, so I'm assuming Eleanor has to deal with getting that. Because he's still lurking, right? Unloaded. Patrick. Um, well, he's gone up to Milwaukee. Okay. And, yeah. And that's an interesting piece. But yeah. Well, let me just finish the Irwin. Yeah. He leaves on that friend's goodwill. 
decides to close up shop. He gives the keys to Isaac Van Voorhees to the factory stores so that supposedly nobody else can use those while he's gone. And he decides to go to Mackinac to try to find an interpreter and maybe a waiter. So he's, he gets in a boat, yeah. right? <laughs> or maybe just to get out of town. He's, he, and he avoids then the Fort Dearborn battle, the Battle yeah, of Fort Dearborn. Right. Oh, that Kinsey's gone up Kinsey's to Milwaukee. Right, yeah. right. Because right. there's a pro-British Indian council there. I don't know that Kinsey went because of that council. He goes because it's close and Leclerc is there. He's got people that he knows, right? So his he, he he's does, got... but he gets up there he and gets, for four days he's kept out of that council. Right, right. right. So and, he, yeah. And then Leclerc shows up and explains, oh, well, he just killed the interpreter at Fort Dearborn. He's not in league with the Americans, he's just selling to them, even though he's living in the fort. <laughs> you should be able to trust this guy. And of course, Kinsey's always in, in hands and everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, can I say, yeah. in Kinsey's defense, I just don't think he looked at the world in that way, right. that you'd have those kinds of allegiances to nation. Oh, he's opportunist. Um, but I also think he's, he has very loyal friends yeah. And I think he is a loyal friend. So I think yeah. he is, it's personal. So he has allegiances to people. So, I mean, I get when we look at him and, and he does many things that you're just like, wow, I can't believe he just turned around and flipped from British to American and then flipped back again. But well, I yeah. don't think he sees himself no. as flipping. He's I just, not flipping. He's just running his business. And yeah. Doing, when he's got an opportunity to capitalize on a trade or do a deal, he is. Yeah, and it's been his entire life. You can make an argument that his entire life has been in this 50-year war, right? Yeah. I mean, Yeah, well, he's 48 the, years old at this point. Right, the war in the Great Lakes has been raging the entire time he's been alive. He does not see an argument for allying with one side or the other or the other in this, right. depending on how you're looking at it. It's completely unclear who's going to win out here, the British, the Indians, or the Americans. My sense is at many moments that he thinks he, he will lose <laughs> yeah. and that the world that he's interested in, that he's adept in, that he has skills for, will just disappear. So he's accepted finally up in Milwaukee. A lot of the families, the Matisse families from Chicago are from Milwaukee. So he's been outfitting these people at Milwaukee for years. So the, the back and forth. And then LeClaire and Kinsey will go down to Peoria. What had happened at Peoria is it's this foursome at Leclerc and Kinsey and Thomas Forsyth, his business partner, and Billy Caldwell. Yes, who's a lieutenant <laughs> of Tecumseh's. Right. By this point, he is with Tecumseh, and then he's now he's with the British Indian Department. Forsyth is—he's an interesting guy. He's amongst a lot of the Potawatomi, you know, in and around Peoria, and there are a lot of militant. Manpak's village is there. Manpak isn't there, but the, his brothers-in-law are all around that are going to come north to Fort Dearborn in August. So, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Peoria is one of the most dangerous places to be, mm-hmm. and Foresight is misrepresenting himself friend of the as a friend of the Indians. Potentially more British than an American. Right. Foresight, I think, is really frightened yeah. of... Being he, found out. Yeah, and he's in a very dangerous place position. Yeah. And Thomas Forsythe's uh, way more interesting in this story than I had ever expected. And then, of course, his story forward is interesting, too, and in where he lands. At any rate. Well, he's a sub-Indian uh, agent. On, 
Well, well, that's right. He's not official. No, he's working kind of on the QT for Ninian Edwards, trying to give him a reconnaissance. He's the governor of the territory of Illinois. Right. And he's been paying Forsyth out of his own pocket and expecting to get reimbursed and been writing the government to make him an official right. an agent. Forsyth is doing this uh, with not everyone knowing it. So this is all kind of... Right, on the QT. On, yeah, exactly. Forsyth's willing to do this, but he's definitely Kinsey's kin and their business partner and they are trying to stay kind of in the middle of all of this if they yeah. possibly can and make money any which way they can but the four of them meet and there's another council gone on in Peoria it's the Native Americans that Tecumseh coming out of Tippecanoe had encouraged these meetings and planning for the attacks that are going to take place now just six eight weeks later that I'm kind of guessing that maybe this is also where that uh, device that Tecumseh uses are the red sticks. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Native American, you don't have watches, you don't have calendars, so how do you say, you know, we're all going to attack these American outposts at different locations on the same basic day or week? So he has this device, which is uh, super clever, these bundles of red sticks. And you take a red stick at the end of the day, each day, throw it in the fire. And then when you're out of the red sticks... That's the time to attack these American forts that are on the, the frontier. Works for me. I mean, what a great way to do it. Because sure. then the people that are delivering those bundles know at the end of each day, they take a stick. Yeah. So you have your old bundles, you have your start time. And then as it works out, as long as they're replaced by the rules on those bundles, pretty yeah. much within a day or two, you're going to have your tax happen simultaneously. Caldwell and Forsyth are going to look for um, Harrison because they're going to go plead their case with Harrison. To forgive Kinsey. To for forgive Kinsey for what's taken oh, place. And you could have gone to Edwards. I mean, I find it really curious that Edwards, uh, yeah, who's the governor that Forsyth is actually working for, but he doesn't want to be known that he's working for him. And yet he's informing regularly to Nina Edwards in letters. And in fact, one of those letters... I think he asked him to write the letters in French or mm-hmm. code them in a way that if it were intercepted by any of the pro-British Indians, they won't be able to decipher it because he'd basically be a dead man. It'd be a death sentence. Right. Wow. Right. And so I think to some degree, that's one of the reasons why he doesn't go there. He goes to Harrison. And that might even put people off the scent altogether that he's working for Edwards. So Foresight might have been doing that for that reason. But I also think it's because Harrison and Kinsey have a relationship. Well, he appointed it's him. A, right. Yes. So he has some confidence in him. And I think they have some sense that Harrison, not Edwards, will be a guy that will be sympathetic to Kinsey. Did I see a letter that he asked Nina Edwards for an introductory letter to... Uh, William Henry Harrison? I think that's the case. They're covering their tracks in really interesting ways, right? But the other thing that could be going on is they want to go to Harrison to get an update. Because there's this question of whether Edwards can actually do much for them. I think there's a hope that Harrison will come through because Harrison can get troops. Right. So Harrison can raise troops in Kentucky militia units to come in. And uh, for the most part, those troops are going to be unwilling to come into Illinois. And Harrison has the ear of both the president but he and does. the secretary of war. That's exactly right. Whereas Nina Edwards is kind of off, let him go to St. Louis and talk to General William Clark. William Clark, right. Yeah, William. Right. 
and Clark. So to, to use a Chicago phrase, he has the clout. Yeah. Yeah, I Harrison. yeah, I mean Harrison yeah. Harrison's the guy that you want on your side. He's the golden boy at this point too in the West. Yeah. So yes, he goes down to try meet with Harrison. To try and smooth this over. And unfortunately the plans for this Indian War, mm-hmm. you've got overlaid on it the American British War. Which starts War, sooner than Tecumseh Which wants. starts sooner than Tecumseh wants. That's exactly <laughs> I think that is as a succinct a description as I've heard of what's going on. Because the corn isn't harvested yet. That's exactly that's usually... right. Because wouldn't the corn be harvested in like August? I think that they were looking at more into September. Oh, okay. okay. You know, is my sense of what they were looking to do. I find the timeline very interesting. And Tecumseh's white wait. <laughs> this doesn't need to start when it does. But Mackinac will fall very quickly, and then it's about a month, and then Detroit falls. What's the date of that? Mackinac will fall July 17th. Okay. Yeah, we're just weeks off before Hull sends that order out to Fort Dearborn. By mail, or do they send out like a rider? Yeah, these orders are all coming with messengers. Okay. (laughs) They're coming slowly enough because they get the orders to evacuate Fort Dearborn. And when it does, Hull surrenders Detroit, so then Detroit falls. Okay, back in the studio. So, Chris, you mentioned your fascination with this timeline of the events in 1812. Yeah, it's good to know what's going on. These are sequential items. One thing leads to another, to another, to another. Right. So, as Dr. Keating said, uh, the Battle of Tippecanoe, and that's in November 7th, 1811. A year before war is declared. Right. And Battle of Fort Dearborn. The Battle of Tippecanoe happens in, in Indiana. And actually, it's, it's called Battleground Indiana between American forces led by Governor William Henry Harrison, who's governor of the Indiana Territory, and Indian forces associated with Shawnee leaders Tecumseh and his brother Tesquatawa, uh, also more often referred to as the Prophet. And then April 6th, 1812, is that Winnebago or Ho-Chunk warrior attack at Lee's Farm down in Hardscrabble. Modern-day Bridgeport. Right. Then at the end of April, we talk about this Frenchman who's in Chicago, Remu. He is there with two Ojibwa Indians who are actually holding the messages for Robert Dixon to gather the Indians and go to... Mackinac or Detroit Hmm. to support the British attacks on the Americans. Then on May 4th, 1812, that's when Captain Heald and Rebecca Heald lose their son in in childbirth. As the little book in Captain Heald's breast pocket says, due to a lack of a midwife. Oh. Now, I don't know if he's inadvertently then blaming surgeon's mate Isaac Van Voorhees. I looked up you know, what childbirth was like in the early 19th century. And at that time, men were usually not involved. Well, oftentimes women died in childbirth too. Correct, correct. So it could have been much worse. It, it could, it could. As we noted in an earlier podcast, I think the ninth podcast with uh, Dr. Keating, uh, Charles Jewett, who is the Indian agent, supposed to be in Chicago, has left because his wife had already lost a child in childbirth and they went somewhere else to deliver their next child and not be stuck in Chicago 
You mean they didn't want to? They didn't want to deliver a child on a dirt floor. I don't think they're worried about that, but they just want to lose another child for yeah. lack of medical attention. I mean, it wasn't like children were dying in, in cities. Right, right. But there was just a lack of other knowledgeable people in childbirth, apparently. That's true. At the fort and at Chicago at that time. And then on June 17th, 1812, about 6 o'clock in the evening, is when John Kinsey, who's 48, kills Jean Lalime, who is 53, in front of Fort Dearborn. Right, or in front of the walls of Fort Dearborn, right? Exactly. Doesn't he lift up Lalim's body against the fort? P- potentially, is one of the descriptions, and maybe is almost he... nearly decapitates him. Wow. And that's witnessed by surgeon's mate Van Voorhees and Matthew Irwin, among a few others. Then June 18th, the next day, the United States declares war against Great Britain, and there's a notification that goes out from the Secretary of War shortly thereafter, and Fort Dearborn probably learns about declaration of war about mid-July of 1812. Again, we're, we're relying on ships to carry messages or riders. Right. Mail, right. P- satchels. Yeah, there was uh, messengers probably going from Detroit to Fort Wayne, Fort Wayne to Chicago, and then the occasional sloop like the Friends Goodwill, which we're going to get to next. That actually shows up July 5th, which then takes... Matthew Irwin, up to Mackinac. And actually, I kind of jumped ahead. Uh, There was also then that whole letter writing that Irwin started. Finally, Secretary of War writes back to Chicago, and Captain Heald finds out that Irwin's been sending letters about the fort and his complaints of the sutlering business. And so they are upset and ask Irwin, day or so later, to try to go and catch Kinsey with Ensign George Ronan. And Irwin, rightly so, interprets that as a threat to his life where he's going to be taken out in the woods and either killed by Kinsey or Ronan. Well, as we learned from our episodes on LaSalle, it's not a good idea to go into the woods with your enemy. That's That's right. That's right. And get bushwhacked. So that was June 22nd of 1812. And then, as I said, July 5th is when the Friends Goodwill uh, sloop, that's a 40-ton sloop that comes from Detroit to Mackinac to Chicago and is bringing goods for Kinsey and then takes the 99 packs from Irwin, who's collected those in his trades with the Indians, and Irwin also leaves with that ship to go and find an interpreter. And so that's basically about where we leave off with this first part of episode 11, The First Star. Yes, so things are in flux. Definitely. And when we come back with part two with Ann Dirk and Keating, we will then get into the battle and its aftermath in its entirety. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. Episode 11, The First Star. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment.
Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. <laughs>